This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 74th episode of the program. Today is December 22nd, and before we get started, I want to thank several people who decided to join the independent progressive media revolution. So today we have Mark Keister, Dorico Baker, Pablo Zambrano, and Patreon user Adam. So all of these individuals decided to support the show either via PayPal, through Patreon, or by going on to humanistreport.com and signing up to be a member. If you too would like to support the program, you could visit the links down below in the subscription box, or you could simply support the show by liking the videos, sharing the videos, and whitelisting us on Adblog. So let's go ahead and get into what I'll be talking about today. Cue the cheesy music. So today, I will talk about the DNC chair race and how DNC chair candidate Tom Perez could not defend his support for the TPP, why one DNC candidate is a Clintonista in Bernie Sanders' clothing, why Obama doesn't support Keith Ellison, how Democrats are getting desperate in their attempts to disqualify Keith Ellison, and why progressives, generally speaking, are split on Keith Ellison. Also on today's episode, Russia. Hillary Clinton calls out Vladimir Putin, Keith Olbermann asserts that we're at war with Russia, and a real journalist is now being smeared as a Russian shill because he actually has a reasonable position on Russian hysteria. Also in today's episode, Bill O'Reilly offers the worst defense for the Electoral College ever, Bernie Sanders surrogates claim they were ignored and even mocked by Hillary Clinton's team. I'll talk about why Trump doesn't want to drain the swamp anymore and how Republicans plan on immediately screwing over the American people as soon as they take over all branches of government. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in because we've got quite a bit to cover. Enjoy the show. So since the beginning of the DNC chair race, we've seen the Democratic Party establishment pull out all the stops to try to disqualify Keith Ellison. So first, what they immediately did was launch a smear campaign against him in order to suggest that he's an anti-Semite, but this has been debunked. And second of all, they've tried to disqualify him by saying that he's not taking this gig seriously enough and that the reason why Debbie Wasserman Schultz was an unsuccessful DNC chair was not because she was corrupt and rigged the primary, but because she served in the House of Representatives and was also the DNC chair. So they say, this isn't a part-time gig, this is a full-time job. So what Keith Ellison did was back them into a corner and say, look, if you want this to be a full-time job for me, then I will resign from the House of Representatives in order to be a full-time DNC chair. So rather than conceding the race to someone who's the clear favorite, who would potentially unify the party who's divided right now, well, the Democratic Party is now scrounging for anything they can get to smear Keith Ellison, and they're getting desperate. The Hill explains, Ellison's critics in the DNC and some supporters of Labor Secretary Tom Perez, the other top candidate, are pointing to the Minnesota Democrats' past tax troubles, campaign finance violations, and minor legal issues that once led to his driver's license being suspended as evidence that he's ill-equipped to lead the DNC. Some of those instances date back to the 1990s, 
All of the issues have been rectified and were previously used in attacks against Ellison during his first run for House in 2006. That year, Ellison's then-wife, Kim Ellison, who acted as his campaign treasurer, wrote to the Minneapolis Star Tribune to accept responsibility for all of the violations. At the time, Kim Ellison said that memory loss associated with her multiple sclerosis was the reason for the unpaid traffic tickets, late campaign finance reports, and household bookkeeping errors. But Ellison's detractors within the DNC say that it's evidence that he can't manage his personal life and would be a poor choice to manage an institution the size of the DNC. Bob Mulholland, a DNC member from California, one of 447 who will vote in the February election, says he has not backed a candidate yet but will not support Ellison. One Republican said to me, you're going to elect a tax cheat who drives without a license? Mulholland said, it's absurd. Now just to remind you, Again, as was stated in the article, everything that they're trying to use against him has been rectified. And I think he actually has a legitimate excuse. His wife, who was suffering from multiple sclerosis, is taking responsibility from it. That disease, it, it's horrible. Like, we have a family friend who suffered from it, and over the years, we watched her deteriorate. And it's, it's so, so sad. So, I think that's a legitimate excuse. I mean, they're getting desperate here. And this guy, Bob Mulallan, who claims he's not going to vote for Keith Ellison because he's worried about what Republicans think. How about this? Why don't you stop worrying about what Republicans think once and for all and just do what's good for the party? But you see, you don't want to do what's ultimately good for the party because you know that what's good for the party is to abandon the Democratic Party's donors and turn towards the grassroots wing of the party, which is the Bernie Sanders wing. The fact that the DNC would resort to these types of smear tactics, it's just showing not only that they're getting desperate, but that they have no shame whatsoever. And mark my words, if you do not allow Keith Ellison to be the DNC chair, if you refuse to vote for him and you pick an establishment Clintonista shill like Tom Perez, you will not win over the Bernie wing of the party. And that's going to be your own fault because you could only slap someone in the face so many times and expect them to still be friends with you. And the relationship actually with the Democratic Party and their base has been more like an abusive spouse. They continue to abuse you and they keep saying, where are you going to go? You can't go to the Republicans because you don't like them. You can't go to the Greens because, you, you know, they're never going to win. So uh, you got to stay with us. That's the attitude that they have. But what we're doing is we're standing up for once and saying, no, we're not going to allow you to walk all over us. We are going to put forward a progressive that we actually like, and if you don't like it, tough shit. You step aside. We're the ones who had the primary rigged against us, and you should be doing everything right now to kiss our asses. But the fact that they're still doing exactly what they did during the primary proves that they did not learn their lesson, and they don't want to learn their lesson. The party is rotten to the core, and if those 447 people don't vote for Keith Ellison... The party is done. You have people like Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid who are as out of touch as you can possibly get in Washington actually swallowing their pride and endorsing Keith Ellison because they know that there's a divide in the party. They want to win. But most of the establishment are not learning their lesson and they don't want to learn their lesson. They want to continue to be corrupt and do business as usual. Well, if you keep doing that, you will, won't have any voters left to betray. So keep it up. Because we're watching, and if you don't support Keith Ellison and vote for Keith Ellison, you're done. 
President Obama has not yet made an official endorsement when it comes to the DNC chair race, but he's indicated that he is not a fan of progressive favorite Keith Ellison, and he said a lot of really positive things about his labor secretary, Tom Perez. So it's clear that he wants Tom Perez to be the leader of the Democratic Party when he's gone. And it's frustrating because President Obama is indicating that the same wing that got him into power, the progressive wing of the party, he now does not want them taking control of the party. So the Huffington Post explains, for weeks, the Obama administration has been the principal holdout in a DC-based effort to unite the warring wings of the Democratic Party behind Ellison. The Minnesota liberal was the most prominent Capitol Hill supporter of Senator Bernie Sanders during the presidential primary, and he has been embraced by establishment Clinton backers, including Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid, his successor Chuck Schumer, and key labor leaders, including American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten, and American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees President Lee Saunders. But key figures from the Obama administration had chafed at the new alignment with former Obama aide David Axelrod championing Perez in the press following meetings between Perez and a host of administration figures, Obama erased any doubt about his views on Friday. If you look at his body of work on behalf of working people, what he's pushed for in terms of making sure that workers get a fair deal, decent wages, better benefits, that their safety is protected on the job, he's been extraordinary, Obama said. And this is what he said about Labor Secretary Tom Perez. So it's funny that he says this, that he wants to protect workers and decent wages. When Tom Perez pushed really, really hard to send their jobs overseas and to give corporations the ability to overthrow the sovereignty of nations if they don't like specific regulations that they're putting forward. That's not pro-worker. They continue here. The president stopped short of formally endorsing Perez, a move that mirrors his positioning during the Democratic presidential primary. Obama and Ellison have squared off over a host of issues over the years. Ellison called to curb the administration's aggressive deportations of undocumented Americans and opposed administration proposals to cut Social Security benefits as part of a never-enacted grand bargain with congressional Republicans. Ellison was an early opponent of Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, arguing it would undermine American workers without providing adequate protections for foreign laborers. He wants these right-wing Democrats who push for these disastrous so-called free trade deals to continue running the party, like Tom Perez, who claims to be a progressive, but you can't be a progressive if you push for a harmful trade policy that all the unions are against. If you're against unions then I don't think you can call yourself a progressive. If you endorse Hillary Clinton, I'm sorry, but I don't think you can call yourself a progressive because you're also endorsing all of her warmongering policies. She wants a cybersecurity policy that would force the United States to respond to cyber attacks militarily. So you want war with Russia and potentially North Korea? That's what you're endorsing if you endorse Hillary Clinton because she called out those people, those countries specifically, who she thought attacked us. To me, this is so aggravating because President Obama, even though I know Donald Trump is his successor, by Felicia, I'm sick of you. I'm so sick of you because even though you've done a lot of good things like overtime pay and whatnot, you have done nothing but spit in the face of the progressives that were so enthusiastic about you. The fact that you betrayed me when you had such a progressive message has not made me hopeful or optimistic. It turned me into the spiteful asshole who can't stand the Democratic Party, who re-registered as an independent when I was a lifelong Democrat. So I can't, I can't stand Obama anymore. I just can't. And maybe when I look back 
And after dealing with Trump for, for several years, I'll feel differently. But the fact that Obama is doing everything to undermine progressives, I, like, I, I'm so sick of it. I'm really sick of it. Obama, you've got to throw us a bone here. I know that you dealt with eight years of Republican obstructionism, but you could have done a lot more to actually give progressives more of what we wanted. You could have helped to unify the party when you saw Hillary Clinton and the DNC dividing it. You didn't do that. So I'm just really sick of it, and I'm over Obama already, honestly. So even though President Obama's labor secretary, Tom Perez, hasn't officially announced that he's going to be running for DNC chair, well, he's already the establishment's clear favorite. And this is problematic because even though he claims to be a progressive, Tom Perez endorsed Hillary Clinton during the primaries when there was a true progressive running against her. And also, he went against labor unions as labor secretary and endorsed the disastrous TPP, which is a so-called free trade deal that would ship our jobs overseas. Now, he was actually recently confronted about this, and he was asked, look, if you were the labor secretary, why did you go against labor unions and push so hard for the TPP? And he fell right on his face. I was wondering, though, why, why did you push so hard for the TPP when all the unions strongly tried to fight against it, if you're in such favor of unions? Well, you know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I know what NAFTA did. And, uh, hey, you take photos? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, and you know what? I work for Barack Obama. And uh, we've made the Labor Department pretty darn good. We work for Barack Obama and we've done a lot. And when you're on a team, you always stick with the team. And you know, I'm very proud of all of the stuff I've done at the Labor Department. Whether it's overtime. <laughs> so even though all the unions fought against the TPP, you, that didn't. <laughs> Well, you know what? Uh, actually, what, what, the, what I did with the unions is I asked them, what do we need to do to fix trade? And, uh, and they gave me... No, I understand. No, I actually, I kept... They told me, here's what we got to do. we got to go to Mexico and fix the labor justice system. And uh, I invite you to go to the Solidarity Center in Mexico because they just fixed the labor justice system down there. So that whole exchange was just awkward to me. So he was he was asked, why did you push for the TPP so hard if you say you're in favor of unions when they were against it? I think that's a fair and reasonable question. And then he started to answer the question and said, well, you know, I grew up in Buffalo. I know the effects of NAFTA. And then all of a sudden he starts talking to the camera person saying, hey, are you taking a picture? Are you filming? And I thought that he was going to have a problem with that. But then when she answered, yeah, I'm filming, he just said, oh, OK, cool. So it looked as though he was going to have a problem with it, but he didn't. So clearly he just needed a couple extra seconds to collect his thoughts and maybe answer the question and think about how he was going to get himself out of this corner that he was backed into. When you need a moment, chew it over with Twix. Now, part of his answer was, I work for Barack Obama and we've made the Labor Department pretty darn good. I don't know what that means. Uh, when you're on a team, you always stick with the team. Ah, yes. Yeah, see, there it is right there. Nothing screams leader more to me than someone saying, well, I have to do what everyone else wants. It sounds like you're more of a follower than a leader, Tom. So why would you want to be the DNC chair? Oh, that's right. Because the establishment is basically pushing you into that position because they desperately want to stop Keith Ellison from getting it. Interesting. Now, he also said that uh, he talked to unions about how to fix trade, and he said, we got to go to Mexico and fix the labor justice system. What? Okay, I shouldn't have to say this to the labor secretary, but Mexico is a sovereign country. 
We can't go into their country and fix their labor system for them. But what we can do is control our trade deals that we make with them. So I don't get it. So, I mean, it just makes no sense. And the question was about United States trade. Our policies screw over American workers and ships their jobs to other countries at the behest of multinational corporations so they can pay foreign workers pennies on the dollar. So as labor secretary, why did you push for a trade agreement that overtly is anti-labor? But I mean, you know, you got to stick with the team, right? Because the donors to the Democratic Party, they want the TPP. And since the donors are really the ones in control, well, then the party wants the TPP. So since the rest of the team team wants it, then Tom Perez says, well, we got to do what the team wants. My hands are tied. I have to support it. I am obligated. There's nothing I can do to stop it. I can't speak out. I can't be principled and grow a spine and actually forget about party orthodoxy for a minute and do what's right. And it's just a strange analogy altogether because some members of the team are going rogue, Tom, and they're doing things that deliberately help other teams, but you still want to stick with the team? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So let me get this straight. One, you can't defend your support for the TPP because you know it's a bad trade deal. And two, you want to stick with the team no matter what. What a great leader you're going to be. So you want to toe the party line no matter what. You don't have a spine. You have no principles. And you want to lead the Democratic Party. Yeah, how about no thank you? So last week when I was talking about potential DNC chair candidates, I was introduced to someone for the very first time whose name I complete and utterly butchered. Two other candidates with lower national profiles, New Hampshire Democratic Party Chair Raymond Buckley and South Carolina Democratic Party Chair Jamie Harrison are also running so far. Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South... <laughs> that's, that's a really unfortunate name. Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, is also weighing a bid, political reports. Now, prior to that segment, I had never heard of this guy before, but I should have been paying attention because apparently this guy is a rising star in the Democratic Party, and he actually threatens Keith Ellison's chances if he does, in fact, get in. Now, he talked to Politico about whether or not he would be running, and this is what he said. I've been talking with a number of fellow local and state leaders from around the country about the future direction of the Democratic Party. I am staying focused on South Bend, Indiana, but I do care deeply about where our country is headed. It's clear the party needs to connect better with communities like my hometown, where working people are looking for economic fairness and for leadership that focuses on our shared values. So in non-political speak, yes, I'm thinking about getting into the race, simply put. Uh, so now this guy would be probably the biggest competition to Keith Ellison besides Obama's labor secretary, Tom Perez, because he's currently the establishment's favorite. Uh, but this guy actually might give Keith Ellison a run for his money. So I think we need to pay attention to him because the New York Times even touted him as the country's potential first gay president. And he's also been a longtime admirer of Senator Bernie Sanders and was the 2000 winner of the John F. Kennedy Profile Encourage Essay Contest for a paper that he wrote about Bernie Sanders. And in that essay, he condemned politicians that run to the center. And Huffington Post even wrote an article on this titled, Indiana Mayor Considering DNC Run Felt the Burn 16 Years Before It Was Cool. So it's really difficult to find out information about his policy positions, but I mean, if this guy 
uh, is feeling the burn and he's presumably a progressive, then the question is, well, should we support him? If not, what's the problem? Well, there's one very big problem with Bud Geek. On the Democratic side, Mayor Pete Buttigieg announced who he'll endorse. He's throwing his support behind Hillary Clinton. He made that announcement with several mayors from across the state. In a statement, he says she puts forward real solutions that will lead to better paying jobs, investments in our small businesses and manufacturers. Yeah. That right there is all I need to know. If you supported Hillary Clinton during the primary when there was a real progressive option, I want nothing to do with you. I've got no love for you. You can take a hike because we need a real progressive right now that's willing to actually stand up for progressive values if the party ever wants to win again. So I am not feeling the butt geek, and I know that I'm mispronouncing his name. It's actually pronounced Boot Edge Edge, so Buddha Judge or whatever. I'm just going to call him butt geek because uh, I think it's easier, and I think it... Uh, has a better ring to it. So I am not feeling the butt geek. And while we're talking about potential DNC chair candidates, I want to mention Jamie Harrison. So this is an individual who is also running. And this guy is a lobbyist for John Podesta's lobbying firm. Now, needless to say, he endorsed Hillary Clinton during the primary and he has his head very far up Hillary Clinton's ass. So this guy is someone who probably doesn't pose a big threat to Keith Ellison, but at the same time, you know, uh, he's going to be an establishment favorite if Tom Perez or Butt Geek falls through. So, look, the main takeaway is that I want you to be weary of a wolf in sheep's clothing. I want you to be weary, more specifically, of a Clintonista in Bernie Sanders' clothing, because these guys are not Bernie Kratz. Uh, they are shills for the establishment and the only reason why people like butt geek are being touted as rising stars in the democratic party is because they towed the party line they endorse the establishment's uh, favorite picks so i'm sorry but i i want nothing to do with that i want someone who's going to be a real leader who stands up for issues based on the principle that individual is clearly keith ellison because he went against party orthodoxy and endorsed bernie sanders and not only that he vocally campaigned for bernie sanders so i'm not in favor of anyone from hillary clinton's wing of the party gaining power again sorry but you guys lost it's our turn now step aside Now, when it comes to Keith Ellison, I've made it very clear that I do support his bid to be the next DNC chair. However, with that being said, and remaining objective and trying to acknowledge the big elephant in the room, we do have to address the fact that progressives are split on Keith Ellison. Now, I don't want to imply that this is a 50-50 split because most progressives, I think, that I've talked to anyways, do in fact support Keith Ellison. I think the split is more like 70-30 or... 80-20. There's a significant portion of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that are really apprehensive about Keith Ellison and they just outright reject him. So now this is for two reasons. One of them is for political miscalculations he's made. And two, another reason is because of policy substance. So getting to the political reasons first, according to the Miami Herald, U.S. Representative Keith Ellison of Minnesota, the frontrunner to head the National Democratic Party, is throwing his support behind a candidate 
candidate in a controversial Miami-Dade County Democratic Party race. On Thursday, Ellison endorsed Coconut Grove developer Stephen Biddle for Miami-Dade committee man. Biddle confirmed to the Miami Herald, The race might seem minor, but whoever wins, Biddle or State Senator Dwight Bullard of Cutler Bay, will likely by default become the next Florida Democratic Party chairman. Biddle told the Herald, Ellison's endorsement validates my progressive credentials with the grassroots. It tells them I'm a guy with the right heart. Now, this may seem insignificant, but the question is, why does this matter? Well, it matters because Biddle is a very wealthy donor to the Democratic Party, and he's also not a progressive. He endorsed Hillary Clinton during the primaries, but the person who Keith Ellison didn't endorse, which is Dwight Bullard, he endorsed Bernie Sanders during the primary. So that's really important. Also, Biddle is friends with people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Dwight Bullard, on the other hand, was endorsed by Our Revolution. So I think that this is a huge miscalculation on Keith Ellison's part. The first reason why I think he's making this decision is because Biddle is Jewish. So I think that when you see all of these anti-Semitic fears against Keith Ellison, he's worried uh, and wants to do something to diffuse all of that talk. So by endorsing Biddle, he's thinking maybe Maybe he can kind of quell those concerns. And also, I think that he wants to unite the Bernie and Hillary wing of the party. So by endorsing someone who supported Hillary Clinton during the primaries, he's trying to heal those wounds. But Keith, they've done nothing but spit in our faces at every turn. We don't have to do anything to extend an olive branch out to the Hillary wing of the party. In fact, I don't want to extend an olive branch out to them. I want to give them the middle finger because that's what they did to us and are still doing to us. They gave us Trump and they're still ignoring progressives. No thank you. Now there's another big problem about Keith Ellison. Well, he is aligned with billionaires like George Soros who are just politically toxic and tainted. And this is not, you know, this is not just unique to Keith Ellison. Elizabeth Warren and Keith Ellison, they've both uh, had closed-door meetings with George Soros, and Democrats and progressives, rightfully so, are skeptical of this relationship. I am too, and I don't like it. It makes me feel very uneasy. I don't care how progressive the, the billionaire is. The fact remains that a billionaire shouldn't have a louder voice and shouldn't have access to you and have your ear more so than the grassroots. And I think that Keith Ellison understands that, but nonetheless, he still chose to meet with George Soros. So I don't like that. Now, those are the political reasons. Those are very big political miscalculations that Keith Ellison has made. Now, getting to the second reason why progressives are torn is based on policy substance. So specifically, foreign policy. So Keith Ellison's foreign policy positions range from reasonable to just outright unacceptable. So for example, on Israel-Palestine, he's one of the few in Congress that just has a reasonable, posi reasonable position on Israel-Palestine. He supports Israel. He supports the existence of the state of Israel, like most people do. Uh, he's in favor of a two-state solution, but simultaneously, he does not condone Israel's numerous incursions into Gaza. He doesn't support them building settlements on Palestinian land. So because of this, people are not only trying to spear him as an anti-Semite, but they're saying that he's unreasonable. No, that's reasonable. Now, when it comes to the Iraq war, he also has been a vocal advocate for the immediate withdrawal of all the troops that we still have in Iraq. Like President Obama and the Democrats like to say, well, the war is over. The war is not over. We still have troops there. And so long as we have troops in Iraq, the war is still going on. We're still occupying Iraq. So he's right on those issues. But when it comes to certain foreign policy issues, he's just straight up wrong. So, for example, he supported Obama's intervention in Libya. 
For the sake of the Libyan people and all demanding freedom in the Middle East, I urge my colleagues to support this resolution authorizing the use of limited force. And then there's also this. Well, I mean, honestly, I would have, I would have done a no-fly zone in Syria way back. You know, uh, I think that uh, Assad is the heart of the problem. Um, I think that, uh, it, th so, so I guess I have some suppositions that are fundamentally, um, th that I mean, I, I wouldn't right. have gotten this far down the road. Now, that was back in 2015, but he currently still supports a Syrian no-fly zone because he's one of 89 co-sponsors to the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act of 2016, which calls for an assessment of a Syrian no-fly zone or so-called safe zones. So I find that position a non-starter for many politicians. And because of that position, I would never cast a vote for Keith Ellison to be the president uh, if he were to ever run for that, because that type of foreign policy is unacceptable. A Syrian no-fly zone is something that could potentially lead to World War III because you are intentionally egging on Russia. You're saying, if you fly within this area of Syria, then we're going to shoot down your planes. You're also potentially killing a lot of civilians. So I vehemently disagree with him on this policy. However, when you look at Keith Ellison's domestic policy and it, you exclude his foreign policy positions, you'll see that he is as good as it gets. So for example, Keith Ellison, he's one of my favorite politicians because he doesn't always toe the party line. He vigorously campaigned against the TPP. He even called out Obama's record-breaking deportations of undocumented immigrants. And he also defied the entire political establishment and endorsed Bernie Sanders and was one of his most vocal supporters. So on one hand, you have someone who's incredibly progressive when it comes to domestic policy issues, who stands up for American workers and criticizes President Obama. But on the other hand, you have someone who I vehemently disagree with on certain foreign policy issues, but certainly not all of them. But in the end, I still do want Keith Ellison to be the DNC chair for several reasons. First, he has a strategy that prioritizes the grassroots efforts of the party over the Democratic Party's donors. And as the DNC chair, his focus wouldn't really be on foreign policy, but more so on domestic policy and getting out the vote for Democrats. And second of all, I actually want someone who's going to be fair during the 2020 Democratic primary. So if we actually do see Tulsi Gabbard decide to run, I don't want an establishment insider trying to rig the primary against her like Debbie Wasserman Schultz did to Bernie. I want someone like Keith Ellison who's going to be fair and set up a process that will allow for all candidates to get their voices out there and allow citizens to make a real democratic decision. Now, third, you're never going to agree with someone on 100% of the issues. And even though, you know, supporting a Syrian no-fly zone is a significant problem that I have with him. And again, I wouldn't support him if he ran for president because of it. But as DNC chair, that's a position that's different. Fourth, if we reject Keith Ellison, we probably are going to get Tom Perez. So that's someone who presumably supports the Syrian no-fly zone, but also the TPP. So the best option clearly is Keith Ellison of anyone who can win. So if we say we don't want Keith Ellison, we get someone who's objectively worse for progressives. So that's another reason. Now, fifth and finally, if I'm just being honest, him winning would be a huge middle finger to the party. And I think that that would feel even sweeter now after we still see how the Democratic Party establishment is trying to smear and vilify Keith Ellison. So if Keith Ellison wing, wins, that's just a big fuck you to the party. And I really want to tell them to go fuck themselves right now. And if Keith Ellison were to win, that would be a win for progressives. After they tried to shun us and silence our wing of the party, 
that's someone from the Bernie wing actually getting into power, being able to change the party. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm just going to uh, unequivocally trust Democrats if Keith Ellison is elected as DNC chair. It doesn't, but it's a huge step in the right direction. And even if he does become the DNC chair, that doesn't mean that I'm just going to accept everything that Keith Ellison does. We're going to hold his feet to the fire, and we're going to be cautious about Keith Ellison and call him out if he pushes for anything that is a dangerous or a centrist or just a not progressive policy. So for those reasons, I still support Keith Ellison, and I think that you guys should support him too. But at the end of the day, I want you guys to have more information and not less. And we have to be objective here. If there's problems with the specific individual in Congress, then we have to call them out, even though we like them. So I dislike those aspects of Keith Ellison. I think he's made harmful political miscalculations, even though I can rationalize them but disagree with them. And I think that some of his foreign policy positions are just unacceptable. However, by and large, he's the best candidate in the race. And I wouldn't even call Keith Ellison the lesser of two evils, because when it comes to domestic economic policy, he's honestly as good as it gets. He's a Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein for me on economic issues. So I do support Keith Ellison. And I think that Benjamin Dixon, who is a progressive colleague of mine, he makes the point about not wanting to purify ourselves into oblivion. So if we become too unreasonable, and if we only advocate for people with a 100% progressive record, well, then we're never going to win. And I want to win right now. I think that during the time of Donald Trump, we need someone like Keith Ellison, who is a true progressive, who will prioritize grassroots efforts over the donors. And this is something that, I mean, he has explicitly stated he intends to do. And I know that there's some people who are against working within the Democratic Party just to begin with, and they just want to abandon them and go to green. And I get that. You know, I, I get the inclination and why that's desirable, but I'm against that right now. Until we can get electoral reform, we have to focus on two goals, reforming the Democratic Party and working to build a viable third party, uh, preferably the Greens. So I support Keith Ellison. I think he'd be a huge step in the right direction, but let's be objective and admit that he's not perfect. But there's not going to be someone that you agree with on 100% of the issues. I only agreed with Bernie 99% of the time. I only agreed with Jill Stein 99% of the time. I agree with Keith Ellison probably 90% of the time. And I think that's enough for me. So we have a pretty interesting story coming from the Daily Beast of all places, and they're probably covering this because it concerns Hillary Clinton uh, winning. But nonetheless, I think that there's some really illuminating things in here. So they talked about how Bernie Sanders' campaign claims that they tried to help Hillary Clinton's team uh, and provide them with strategic advice, but not only were they ignored they were just outright mocked. So specifically, when it comes to states that ultimately cost Hillary Clinton the election, like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, well, quote, they fucking ignored us on all these three battleground states while we were sounding the alarm for months. Nomiki Konst, a progressive activist and former Sanders surrogate who served on the 2016 Democratic National Committee Platform Committee, told the Daily Beast, We kept saying to each other, like, what the fuck? Why are they just blowing us off? They need these voters more than anybody. So they actually met with Hillary Clinton's team at the Democratic National Convention in July to talk about strategy, and they voiced their concern to Hillary Clinton's team, stating that they don't think she has a great general election strategy and she's she's shunning half the base. Uh, and this is what they said. 
Once we were at the convention, Bernie people were on the ground. We could feel it. People were pissed off. There with their pitchforks ready to fight, Konst recalled. But before the convention, after the platform committee meeting that I was on, Bernie surrogates were talking constantly, saying, oh my god, Hillary is going to lose if she doesn't address TPP and free trade and all these other issues. We were looking at the polling and thought that if these people stay home, she'll lose. When their meeting finally happened during the Democratic convention, the progressive activist fears were only inflamed. We were saying we were offering our help. Nobody wanted President Donald Trump, Konst continued, noting that the Bernie world side was offering Clinton's team their plans, strategy memos, lists of hardened state organizers, timelines, data, the works, to win over certain voters in areas she ultimately lost, but where Sanders had won during the primary. We were painting them a dire picture, and I couldn't help but think they literally looked like they had no idea what was going on here. She continued, I remember their faces. It was like they had never fucking heard this stuff before. It's what we had been screaming for the past nine months. It's like they forgot the basics of Politics 101. As the days and weeks flew by, the Bernie delegation kept underscoring TPP, jobs, union allies, the youth vote, and the environment, and pitched multiple rallies with Sanders in states such as Pennsylvania and Michigan, a state where Sanders unexpectedly beat Clinton in the Democratic primary, and a state that Clinton actively neglected during the general. The math that they lost on is the math we won on, Cohn said. So we wrote out a plan and sent it to them, telling them to stop thinking you're going to get this Obama coalition. It's not going to happen. Assurances were then made with various Clinton senior staffers that they would follow through with subsequent meetings and phone calls to address these gaps and warnings. Instead, the meetings were canceled and rescheduled into oblivion. We not only screamed about this, we wrote memos and we begged Jane Klebe, Nebraska Democratic Party chair and another Sanders booster who was at the DNC meeting said, I spent a good chunk of time writing memos about how Bernie surrogates could be utilized on the campaign trail about issue voters, about the environment, Black Lives Matter, Dakota Access Pipeline, rogue cops, you name it. I was also talking specifically about rural communities and how Hillary completely ignored and abandoned anything that we cared about. Klebe noted that instead of subsequent discussion about battleground strategy and resources, what she got was a handful of conference calls where Sanders alumni would get to hear about the three top talking points for Hillary Clinton's email server or something. The Clinton campaign believed they had the strongest and brightest people in the room, and they had no concept of why people would choose Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton, Klebe continued. They mocked us. They made fun of us. They always had a model that was supposed to save the day. We were street activists, and they don't get that and that's a fundamental divide they ran a check the box sanitized campaign and voters don't think like that you don't win elections that way to them we were a leftist nuisance nothing else a former senior sanders campaign aide said i offered to help and never heard back from anybody quite frankly i wasn't surprised robert becker a veteran organizer who ran iowa and michigan operations for sanders presidential campaign told the daily beast so this inside look at what went wrong is exactly how it appeared on the outside. Hillary Clinton's team, they were clueless. I mean, she made rookie mistakes that a seasoned politician should never make. You don't go on to court neoconservative warmongers like Henry Kissinger and, and John Negroponte after you shunned half the base. The most liberal wing of the base, Bernie Sanders supporters, you completely not just shunned them, but you gave them the middle finger and spit in their face on top of that. And then you thought that you could make up those votes somehow that you were losing with neoconservatives. You thought 
enough Republicans were disillusioned with Trump that they would support you instead? Give me a break. They voted for Donald Trump because they were anti-establishment. And it may be a faux populist message that he was espousing, but nonetheless, they wanted something different. You were not different, Hillary Clinton. You were the same. You were the same status quo politician that got us NAFTA and would potentially get us the TPP. So to think that you can somehow get Republicans over to your side was a joke to me. And look, I myself thought that it would probably be the case that Hillary Clinton would ultimately beat Donald Trump because look, let's face it, Donald Trump is a beatable opponent. This was a cakewalk for Hillary Clinton. If this were a video game, the election would be on the easiest difficulty imaginable. I mean, if you want to win an election, you run against someone like Donald Trump. So I thought that Hillary Clinton would probably win even though she ran a terrible campaign. But I still warned her that there are many red flags that she was ignoring. Uh, she was ignoring Bernie Sanders. And she thought that when she, like how she did in 2008, she endorsed Obama and all of her supporters ended up ultimately supporting Obama. But... I warned Hillary Clinton myself. I said, you're not going to get all of Bernie Sanders supporters. You may get um, many of them, but not all of them. This is what I said specifically. Hillary Clinton, as well as Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Barack Obama, all of these Democratic establishment people are severely underestimating the reality that is Bernie or bust. Now, I get why they're doing this, because in 2008, about 45% of Hillary Clinton's supporters uh, they were considered as Puma, party unity my ass. And basically, they were saying that if Hillary Clinton does not win the Democratic nomination, they will not support Barack Obama in November. 45% of them said this, but in the end, Hillary Clinton endorsed Barack Obama and they ended up supporting him. Now, when it comes to the Bernie or Bust movement, only about 25 to 33% of them state that they will not support Hillary Clinton if she is the nominee. Now, that's a smaller portion, but that still could be detrimental if 25 to 33% actually don't support Hillary Clinton. Now, again, it seems logical to think that these individuals will switch and unite behind Hillary, but if you think that way, you're not diving into the details. It's really important to do that. So first and foremost, one reason why this is not the case is because Bernie Sanders draws in independents who wouldn't have supported the Democratic candidate otherwise. There are many independent candidates that will just vote for Green or that will vote for the Constitutional Party or some other Libertarian Party. They're not going to support the Democratic candidate no matter what. So all these new voters that Bernie Sanders would have drawn in will be lost if Hillary Clinton is the nominee. Second of all, Barack Obama had the young vote. Hillary Clinton does not have the young vote. Young voters are not going to come out and vote unless they are excited. If they're not excited by your corporatist candidates, they're just going to stay home and not vote. So what makes you think that they're going to go out of their way to wait in line for five hours in sub-states due to voter suppression tactics when they're not even excited about you? They're just going to stay home. So if you already had the young vote, I would say, you know what, you might be right. But the fact that Hillary Clinton cannot win the young vote and only older, more wealthier voters support her, it's devastating. Now, finally and most importantly, the biggest error in their reasoning is that Bernie Sanders supporters are much, much different than Hillary Clinton supporters. See, the thing about Hillary Clinton supporters is that they're socially liberal, they have a superficial understanding of policy, and what they know about the nuance when it comes to economic policy and foreign policy is probably limited, to be honest. So what they do is they kind of endow trust in the Democratic Party to re represent them because they look at the Republican option and they think, look, 
I don't want to vote for them, and I'm at least socially liberal. I'm in favor of abortion and gay rights, so I guess I'm going to support them. So they tend to just trust the Democratic Party. They tend to trust these Democratic superstars like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi without actually looking at their policy positions. So they prioritize the candidate above the policy. But when it comes to Bernie Sanders, we prioritize the policy above the candidate. So in other words, if Bernie Sanders were to flip and all of a sudden start backtracking and saying, you know what, maybe we should wait to break up the big banks. Maybe we shouldn't reinstate Glass-Steagall. We would all abandon him. This isn't a cult of personality with Bernie Sanders. We support him because of his policy positions. We don't support Hillary Clinton because of her policy positions. And this has been something that's been so difficult for people in the establishment to comprehend. Now, I'm not just making this up. I have a bunch of examples for you as to why Hillary Clinton supporters support the candidate above the policy. So case in point, in 2012, everyone was railing against Mitt Romney for giving speeches to these large financial institutions, for having super PACs, for taking lots of money from special interests. And that was one of the main complaints by Democratic voters who are now supporting Hillary Clinton. But now all of a sudden, Hillary Clinton is taking money from uh, to give speeches to Goldman Sachs. She has seven super PACs. She is taking so much money from every special interest you can imagine. But now Democrats are sort of walking back their stance on that. Maybe Citizens United isn't so bad. Maybe money in politics is just the way the system works and you got to play the game to win. So wasn't Mitt Romney just playing the game to win? Why are you reversing your position on this? Again, this is a reason why they support the candidate above the policy. They believe the Democratic Party is truly looking out for their best interests. So that's why when Hillary Clinton endorsed Barack Obama in 2008, like sheep, they followed Hillary Clinton because her supporters are like sheep. They will follow her and defend her no matter what she does. Whereas that's not the case with us and Bernie Sanders. Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, they're quick to blame James Comey. They're quick to point the finger at Russia and say that the DNC leaks and the release of John Podesta's emails are what ultimately cost her the election. But your campaign was bereft not only of strategy, but vision as well. You didn't have a message. What were you trying to communicate to voters, Hillary? I'm with her. Okay, cool. What does that mean? I don't need to prove to you that I'm with you. You need to prove that you're with me, and you didn't. And that's why you lost. That's why you did not capture the Rust Belt like Obama did. And that's why Donald Trump will be the president. So thanks, Hillary. Hillary Clinton is too much of a narcissist to admit that she lost the election to an easily beatable opponent because she ran a terrible campaign and shunned half of the Democratic base. So she is now taking the time to call out someone who she thinks helped cost her the election. Vladimir Putin. So let's go ahead and listen. Vladimir Putin himself directed the covert cyber attacks against our electoral system, against our democracy, apparently because he has a personal beef against me. Putin publicly blamed me for the outpouring of outrage by his own people. And that is the direct line between what he said back then and what he did in this election. This is uh, not just an attack against me and my campaign, although that may have added fuel to it, this is an attack against our country. We are well beyond normal political concerns here. This is about the integrity of our democracy and the security of our nation. 
So obviously, I take issue with multiple things in there. So she said Vladimir Putin himself directed the covert cyber attacks against our electoral system, against our democracy, apparently because he has a personal beef against me. Okay, you have to be really careful with your language there, Hillary. She said that he directed covert cyber attacks against our electoral system. That implies that he did more than just release emails from John Podesta and the DNC. That implies that he actually rigged the election itself. Are you really going to suggest that, Hillary Clinton? Until you provide us with the evidence, that's just your opinion. WikiLeaks claims that the DNC was not hacked. They say that the information was leaked to them by a DNC insider. And furthermore, there's more evidence to suggest at this point that we've seen that John Podesta was the victim of a phishing scam. So to say that Vladimir Putin directed a covert attack on our electoral system... That's really, really troubling because not only do you delegitimize the results of this election, but the implications of this are huge. I mean, this is something that we could go to war over. If somebody hacks the election of the United States, do you not think that that is an act of war and that the U.S. government would view that as an act of war? So you're being very cavalier with your choice of words here. Now, second, you've saber-rattled against Russia for the entirety of your campaign, and you literally said that you want to respond to cyber attacks against foreign countries militarily. So if Vladimir Putin had a preference in this race and he didn't want you to win, maybe it's because he doesn't want to go to war with the United States. Now, I'm not justifying him potentially hacking the election, uh, which is what you're calling it, but really it's just releasing emails from the DNC. But I'm not justifying that. I'm not justifying hacking or condoning it. But I'm telling you that you're a war hawk, you're a warmonger, and you've been saber-rattling against Russia for now more than a year. So if I were Vladimir Putin, yeah, I would think that maybe Hillary Clinton isn't the best choice because I don't want a nuclear war against a huge power. And then she said, this was not just an attack against me and my campaign, this is an attack against our country. Uh, no, this is actually a distraction against the substance of what was released in those emails. It revealed that you helped Debbie Wasserman Schultz rig the primary against Bernie Sanders. This revealed overt corruption. This revealed that you did favors for your donors that were uh, donating to you millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation while you were Secretary of State. Hillary, that is overt corruption there. So why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we talking about the substance? Because even if we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Russia did leak these emails, specifically Vladimir Putin, that doesn't erase what you were caught doing. You were caught with your pants down. And you don't like that. So you want to create this distraction and want to blame Russia and risk war with Russia or a new Cold War, which is still problematic, all because you don't want to face the facts that you were exposed and we got confirmation that you were as corrupt as we thought you were. Now, the worst part in here to me was when she said, this is about the integrity of our democracy and the security of our nation. You've got to be fucking kidding me, Hillary Clinton. This is so aggravating. If you want to talk about the integrity of our democracy, great. Let's start with the primaries and how the DNC literally tailor-made a primary that would specifically benefit you and that they rigged the debate schedule. They only did six debates and then they banned candidates from participating in debates that weren't sanctioned by the DNC and said if you participate in a CNN debate that the DNC doesn't approve of, 
well, you don't get into future debates. That would basically kill off their campaign. You moved red states up on the primary schedule because you're a more conservative candidate and you knew it would help you and give you an early lead, thus demoralizing the support base of whatever opponents you would have. You and your goons at the DNC created media narratives to smear Bernie Sanders and his supporters. You tried to smear him for being an atheist. You claimed that we're Bernie bros and that we got violent at the Nevada convention. And for some reason, you suspiciously benefited from voting irregularities that always seemed to harm Bernie Sanders. So in states where the exit polls were off and exceeded the margin of error, well, conspicuously, Hillary Clinton always benefited from that. The DNC literally changed the times of primaries in pro-Bernie districts. Bernie Sanders supporters were purged off the voting rolls. And I say Bernie Sanders supporters because in certain districts, well, the demographics just favored Bernie Sanders. And hundreds of thousands of people were purged off the voting rolls. This all benefited you, Hillary Clinton. So if you want to start talking about the integrity of our democracy, let's start with the primaries that you rigged and made you the illegitimate Democratic Party nominee. Now, I love how she also wants to laughably talk about the security of our nation, as if she cares about that. Well, great, I'm game. Let's start with your private email server that you installed in your house, which was literally unprecedented. No Secretary of State has ever done this before. Nobody literally set up a private email server so that way, their private emails would not be subject to FOIA requests. You did this to hide your corruption, and then the conclusion of the FBI investigation showed that you did, in fact, send and receive the classified information on your private email server. So you risked national security, in other words, all because you wanted to hide your corruption. And then you had the gall to blame James Comey when you should have been indicted before the primary was over. I mean, you've got a lot of nerve, Hillary Clinton. So that was honestly, when she said, let me read the quote again. This is about the integrity of our democracy and the security of our nation. Yeah, you're a big hypocrite. And saying that you're a hypocrite, it doesn't do justice to the extent that you are a hypocrite. This is so aggravating. <laughs> so I honestly was pissed off beyond belief when I heard this. Now, think about what she's doing here and why it's really hypocritical of her. So she's trying to delegitimize Donald Trump's win, even though throughout the uh, election, when she thought she was going to win, she was worried that he would do the same thing to her and he wouldn't concede the race and delegitimize her win. Are you saying you're not prepared now to commit to that principle? What I'm saying is that I will tell you at the time, I'll keep you in suspense. Well, okay? Chris, let me respond to that because that's horrifying. You know, every time Donald thinks things are not going in his direction. He claims whatever it is is rigged against him. Uh, the FBI conducted a year-long investigation into my emails. They concluded there was no case. He said the FBI was rigged. He lost the Iowa caucus. He lost the Wisconsin primary. He said the Republican primary was rigged against him. Then Trump University gets sued for fraud and racketeering. He claims the court system and the federal judge is rigged against him. Uh, there was even a time when he didn't get an Emmy for his TV program three years in a row, and he started tweeting that the Emmys were rigged against Should have gotten it. This, this is a mindset. This is, this is how Donald thinks. 
And it's funny, but it's also really troubling. So the implication here is that it's troubling to not accept the result of an election, not because that would have prevented Hillary Clinton from being sworn in, but because if half of the country does not believe that you're a legitimate president, well, that doesn't just make it more difficult for the president to govern, but it's actually really harmful for democracy if people don't buy into the fact that their leader actually is legitimate. And this is why many regimes collapse in foreign countries. But now that she lost, She's trying to delegitimize Donald Trump, ironically, in the same exact way that she feared that he would have delegitimized her. That makes you a gigantic hypocrite, Hillary. So you cried all this time about him needing to accept the election results. And now that you lost, you don't want to accept the election results. You may have conceded, but you're doing everything you can to delegitimize Donald Trump. You don't, you don't even have to do that, okay? Most of the country voted against him. You won the popular vote. So I don't, I don't get what your goal is here. It looks like you're a sore loser. And if you really want to talk about why you lost the election, why don't you take some accountability for yourself? Stop blaming James Comey because he didn't force you to set up the private email server and stop blaming Vladimir Putin because he didn't force you to rig the DNC or rig the Democratic primary. Blame yourself because you ran a terrible campaign and you ignored half of your base and you tried to court neoconservatives, Hillary. Blame yourself for that. You are the reason why you lost. Keith Olbermann has a new video series for GQ, and he's someone that I'm now ashamed to admit that I used to look up to. So in one of his latest videos, he did the establishment's bidding for them and decided to join in on all of this Russian hysteria. Now, his take, it's a wee bit hyperbolic to say the least. So take a look and then we'll discuss why he's become complete and utterly unhinged. We are at war with Russia, or perhaps more correctly, we have lost a war with Russia without a battle. We are no longer a sovereign nation, we are no longer a democracy, we are no longer a free people. We are the victims of a bloodless coup, so far a bloodless coup, engineered by Russia with, at best, the traitorous indifference of the Republican Party and Donald John Trump, a man who, to borrow a phrase from another December long ago, will live in infamy. In five weeks' time, unless desperate measures are taken, we will hand over the government to a man who lost the popular vote by more than Woodrow Wilson or Jimmy Carter won it, a man whom the Russians wanted to run our country for them, a man whom the Russians got to run our country for them, a man for whom the Russians interfered with our elections, which if we did it to another country would be described as an act of war. And in this country, we have conceded defeat. Some experts, John Kasich's strategist, John Weaver for one, have compared this to Pearl Harbor. Even the hard-right ex-Congressman Joe Walsh says Republican silence will be tantamount to treason. Some others, too, have proved courageous. Trump, self-destructive to the last, issued a childish statement mocking the CIA, but as Tim Dickinson of Rolling Stone noted, not denying anything. But the vast majority of Republicans have said nothing, and the vast majority of Democrats have said nothing, and the vast majority of the media has said nothing of substance, and the president has said nothing close to enough. The CIA and FBI and Homeland Security, the institutions whose interest in freedom we on the left most frequently distrust, they have said something. They said it first to congressional and Senate Republicans in September. Dire warnings, warnings that Mitch McConnell and other Republicans reportedly buried, warnings that the Russians, using computer hacking and perhaps other means, were not merely trying to discredit the election, but to achieve the specific outcome of electing their man Trump. He lost his mind. 
And what's sad is that, you know, he probably watched it back and thought, man, I killed it right there. That was passionate. That was fiery. That was great. No, that was that was embarrassing, man. So the first thing he said was, we are at war with Russia. Uh, no, we're not at war with Russia, and I don't want to go to war with Russia. Do you want to go to war with Russia, Keith? Are you willing to pick up a gun and fight them? I don't think you are. You're in your cozy studio right now bitching about what the establishment tells you to be angry about. No. Now, he also says, we are no longer a democracy. We are no longer a free people. We are the victims of a bloodless coup. So far, a bloodless coup, mind you, because it might be bloody. Engineered by Russia with, at best, the traitorous indifference of the Republican Party and Donald Trump. So let me get this straight. You're angry that the Russians undermined American democracy because they exposed how the DNC undermined American democracy? I mean... It's ironic because you can replace anything what you said there with Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the DNC, and it's basically still true. So I transcribed all of what you said, and when you replace Russia with the DNC, here's how it sounds. We are no longer a democracy. We are no longer a free people. We are the victims of a bloodless coup, so far a bloodless coup, engineered by Debbie Wasserman Schultz with, at best, the traitorous indifference of the Democratic Party and Hillary Rodham Clinton. We're all angry at Russia. We're supposed to be angry at Russia because they exposed uh, how the DNC is corrupt and how Hillary Clinton is overtly corrupt and did the bidding of her donors while she was Secretary of State. I'm not saying that I condone hacking and Russian interference, but you don't have any evidence for that. You haven't presented us with the evidence. And if it is true, well, then that doesn't erase the substance. You guys still rigged the primaries against Bernie Sanders. What about that? Why aren't we talking about that? This sounds like a distraction to me, and Keith Olbermann doesn't know that he's just being a shill for the Democratic Party establishment. Now, he also says the Russians interfered with our elections, which, if we did to another country, would be described as an act of war. Now, this was hilarious to me because, first of all, all indications point to the DNC uh, having an insider leak the information. At least this is what Julian Assange maintains. He says that uh, the emails that were sent to him from the DNC were not hacked. They were leaked by someone within the DNC. And furthermore, John Podesta's emails, well, they were released because he was the victim of a phishing scam. So saying that it's a hacking in general right now is something that we can't necessarily say with certainty. And second of all, even if you can prove that Russia did interfere in this election, what they did is they made information public that should have already been public to the American taxpayer. We deserve to know what the DNC is saying. And third, if you want to talk about interfering with foreign elections, well, let's talk about some of the elections that we interfered with and how that might be an act of war, but you don't want to talk about that. So Iran, Chile, Guatemala, Congo, the Dominican Republic, South Vietnam, Brazil, Bolivia, Honduras, Panama, Grenada, Argentina, and this is not a comprehensive list, by the way. So are you going to speak out against that type of interference into the foreign affairs of other countries? And that's not just elections that we interfered with in these countries. These are in some cases, regimes that we just outright overthrew. So are you going to speak out against that or do you condone that? Because as you state in this video, silence is tantamount to being complicit in Russian hackings and ap approving of Russian hackings. So when are you going to speak out against that? And furthermore, guess who else is in favor of interfering with elections, Keith? Your good pal Hillary Clinton. I do not think we should have pushed for an election in the Palestinian territories. 
think that was a big mistake. And if we were going to push for an election, then we should have made sure that we did something to determine who was going to win. So we have interfered with other people's elections, Keith, but it's okay when we do it, right? It's not okay if anyone does that to us, and it isn't, but it's okay if we do that to other countries. You're a hypocrite. And then he goes on to cite how even some Republicans are against this and how silence is tantamount to treason. Hey, Keith, I wonder why the Republicans are on your side. Could it be because their defense contractor donors might stand to gain something from a new world war? So that's not even an argument. And by citing their comments, you lose credibility. And then he even condemned President Obama. He said the president has said nothing close to enough. Obama has said that the United States will retaliate. What more do you want? I mean, I don't get the end game of all this saber rattling against Russia. Do you actually want to go to war with them, Keith? Because it really sounds like that. And look, here's my question to you, Keith. Aren't you curious why all of the government agencies that you cited won't release the information for the public to see? Aren't you wondering why President Obama hasn't declassified this information? I mean, did you not learn your lesson already? Government agencies told us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and they did not present us with the evidence and just by taking their word for it, we got into one of the worst foreign policy blunders in American history. So are you really willing to do that again, but with a country that actually does have weapons of mass destruction? If so, you're just a lunatic, and you don't think for yourself because you used to work for MSNBC, which is the propaganda wing of the Democratic Party, so you accept what the establishment tells you and you don't even question it. And look, even if we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Russia did hack the DNC, and it was a hack and not a leak, well, they confirmed what we already knew. We already knew that the DNC effectively rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders and created an election that was tailor-made to exclusively benefit Hillary Clinton. They forewent the usual get-out-the-vote campaign because they didn't want to help Bernie Sanders. They literally moved red states up on the primary schedule because they knew it would help Hillary Clinton since she was the more conservative candidate and it would give her an early lead. And they also limited debates. And then they restricted candidates from participating in non-DNC-sanctioned debates. They also colluded with the media to craft narratives that would harm Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, if you're angry that our democracy was compromised, then maybe you should be more worried about the domestic traitors that we have in this country that pissed off their own base, which ultimately gave us Donald Trump, Keith. So Russia didn't have to hack us to tell us what we already knew, that the DNC favored Hillary Clinton, that Hillary Clinton was overtly corrupt and that she did favors for donors to the Clinton Foundation as Secretary of State. They just confirmed what we already knew, what was obvious to sane people that dared to question the Democratic Party. And see, if the Democratic Party wants to prevent this from happening in the future, then take steps to improve cybersecurity. But the most important takeaway that you should have gotten from this election, Keith, is that Hillary Clinton ultimately lost not because of Russian interference, but because her own base wouldn't come out to support her because of the election that she rigged, the primaries. So, I mean, for once, Keith. Just dare to be brave and think for yourself. Question something that the establishment tells you. And also... Lay off the PCP a little. As things are today, January 20th will not be an inauguration, but rather the end of the United States as an independent country. It will not be a peaceful change of power. It will be a usurpation, and the usurper has no validity, no credibility, and no authority over the Constitution. This is a reality that will become the only reality until this country rids itself of Donald John Trump. He is not a president. He is a puppet. 
put in power by Vladimir Putin. And those who ignore these elemental existential facts, Democrats or Republicans, are traitors to this country and will immediately and forever after be held accountable. Resist. Face. Glenn Greenwald, who I think is one of the few real journalists left in the country, went on Fox News to discuss the Democratic Party establishment's hysteria over alleged Russian hacks, and he basically said everything that I wanted to say, but more eloquently. So let's go ahead and listen to that. Here's the story. I know you read it. It really had an instantaneous effect on the way people are covering the post-election uh, sort-out. It said, quote, the CIA has concluded in a secret assessment that Russia intervened in the 2016 election to help Donald Trump win the presidency. That sentence right there changed everything here in Washington. Should we believe that assessment? We should be extremely skeptical of it for multiple reasons. To begin with, this is a secondhand report, so you have somebody whose identity is being shielded describing what the CIA supposedly concluded, laundering that through the Washington Post. These are assertions that are being made completely unaccompanied by any evidence whatsoever, let alone evidence that we can touch and, and rationally review. There's all kinds of reasons to suspect the CIA statements, including the fact that they're wrong all the time. Um, they're programmed in a lot of cases to disseminate disinformation, and there's lots yeah. of reasons to view them as political actors. Um, and so I think we ought to be highly skeptical. But what's interesting, I agree with that assessment completely. I mean, they're sometimes right, they're sometimes wrong, but they're certainly skilled in deception. That's what they do. And yet, politically, here in Washington, the response has been, well, if you don't believe this account of an account of analysis by the CIA, you're somehow acting on behalf of the Kremlin, or you're not patriotic, or you're insulting the memory of the CIA officers who've died in the line of duty. Have you seen that kind of response before? I saw it from um, a Democratic congressman, Adam Schiff, actually, when, when you interviewed him last week, and all you were doing was asking him for evidence, and he, he told you you should go to put your show on RT. Um, and in my journalism, this is the response I've been getting for many months now, as, as not even... Um, not even when you deny that it happened. I mean, nobody should deny that Russia might have done this. Of course Russia might have done this. Um, this is the right. kind of thing that all states do, and, and certainly Russia. But all you do is ask for evidence before believing it, before embracing it is true. And that alone sub sub subjects you to accusations that you might be disloyal, that you're somehow a, a tool of the Kremlin. Um, it's a really toxic environment that I think Democrats have created, a little bit out of desperation and out of political um, maneuvering as well. But but it is quite dangerous. Well, it is so weird that Russia is the focus. I, I mean, speaking for myself, I'm agnostic on Russia. I don't speak Russian. I've never been to the country. I don't have strong feelings about it one way or the other. I'm willing to believe anything, basically. I'm open-minded. And yet, all of a sudden, Russia seems to be villain number one. Why is that? It seems strange. You know, one... One of the really interesting things is in 2012, um, when Mitt Romney ran against Barack Obama, the Democrats mocked uh, Romney mercilessly for depicting Russia as the number one geopolitical threat. And they p released a video saying uh, Mitt Romney's stuck in the Cold War. He doesn't understand the 21st century. Obama in the debate said the 1980s want their foreign policy back to think that Russia is this grave threat. Um, it, and, and throughout the Obama presidency, he tried accommodating Putin. He, he didn't arm anti-Russian yeah. factions in Ukraine. He tried to cooperate with him in, in Syria. It was really an election year political um, theme that the Democrats manufactured out of whole cloth that the Russians, that Putin posed some sort of existential
existential threat to the United States, that they're our enemy, our entrenched enemy, and we all have the patriotic duty to resist it. And, and it's not working. Um, the Americans don't wake up and worry about Vladimir Putin, but Democrats seem to be digging in further into this losing political attempt. Well, see, what, I guess what bothers me about it is that unlike the attack on the Trotskyites, who are sort of a powerless group exiled to Mexico City, Russia's a real country with nuclear weapons. And are there consequences of what we've seen in the last six months where our foreign policy seems to have shifted to a pretty hostile posture toward Russia? That seems reckless to me if, in fact, there's only a political motivation behind it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Democrats were very alarmed by Trump's accepting this phone call from the president of Taiwan based on the not invalid argument that China yeah. is a nuclear armed power and, and a formidable threat. And we should be careful about producing unnecessary right. confrontation, which I agree with. But the same is true of Russia. To sit here and, and sort of suggest that Vladimir Putin lurks behind every American problem to concoct these wild, elaborate conspiracy theories to try and convince Americans that um, Russia is this grave threat to the United States that we all have to stand up. I think it's incredibly dangerous. Um, not not just because it creates a toxic environment domestically, but because it's very dangerous. It can put us on a path of almost unintentional uh, confrontation with uh, a country that can do a lot of damage. That's the way it seems to be. I don't think you and I have ever voted for the same person. So I hear you say that because it makes me feel less crazy. I thought it was missing something. Glenn Greenwald, thanks all for joining us. I appreciate it. So I think that this was by far the most intelligent conversation I've seen in the mainstream media since this whole debacle began. I mean, everything from Glenn Greenwald pointing out the party's hypocrisy and how they criticized Mitt Romney for his stance towards Russia, to uh, the fact that Tucker Carlson pointed out how this is just reckless, even if it's true and you could prove it. This is reckless behavior. What's the end goal? Do you want an actual war with Russia? So I think that this was a brilliant conversation. And I really do commend these two people for having an intelligent discussion when they have completely different political beliefs. So when it comes down to the question of whether or not Russia hacked the United States and John Podesta's emails in the DNC, you can basically summarize Glenn Greenwald's response with, uh, I don't know, but show us the evidence. Maybe it's true, but show us the evidence. Uh, and also, I'd like to add. Where, uh, does that take away from the substance? No, it does not. So even if you can prove it, that doesn't unexpose the corruption that was revealed in the release of the DNC and John Podesta's emails. I mean, we, sh we saw that Hillary Clinton is overtly corrupt. She was doing the bidding of Clinton Foundation donors while she was Secretary of State. That's incredibly corrupt. Also, when it comes to the DNC, they rigged the primary in favor of Hillary Clinton. You can't undo what we discovered. So I don't care how much you cry about Russia. That's not going to delegitimize what was in those emails. Now, one part in there was really important. So Tucker Carlson pointed out that uh, if you don't believe this, the Democratic people will treat you as though you're acting on behalf of of the Kremlin. And this is basically the response that Greenwald has received since he's been speaking out against the Democratic Party's unvalidated accusations at this point. So his outlet, The Intercept, which is one of the few news outlets that actually does good objective journalism, they are apparently now traitors. So a journalist for Politico tweets, The Intercept and Sputnik Kremlin News see eye to eye on the Russian hacking investigation. You got him. <laughs> A pollster tweets, who couldn't guess The Intercept would slowly morph into a Russia Today-esque propaganda machine. Right, so one of the few objective journalistic outlets that still does investigative reporting, 
They're doing propaganda for the Russians. Okay, very brilliant. And also, The Intercept's Li Fong, which is one of the best journalists in the country, tweets that Dems are calling him a Putinite Nazi for pointing out that Obama wasn't effective as he could have been in carrying out his domestic agenda in 2009. Now, I'm sure that Putin also approved of this article published in The Intercept about how he controls the internet and public opinion in Russia, or about how Russian book publishers censor books for Putin and how publishing children's books in Russia is just a joke, or about the country's homophobia, I'm sure that Putin directly approved of these articles, right? And since I have the same position as Glenn Greenwald here, I'm of the mind that I think you should show us the evidence if you want us to accept this claim, uh, let me expose myself. I actually have a dog, and his name is Vladimir. That's right. So I am a Russian shill <laughs> because I agree with Glenn Greenwald and have a reasonable position. Uh, and I have a dog named Vladimir. So before you even have to do it, I'm outing myself, guys. Russian shill right here. Dog named Vladimir. Look, all of this illustrates that the Democratic Party, they've turned into the party of Alex Jones, where they not only peddle these conspiracy theories, but they actually lambast anyone who doesn't agree with them and toe the party line and this bullshit narrative. Look, again, I want to reiterate here, and let me be very clear with my words. I'm not saying that Russia didn't hack the DNC or John Podesta's emails, but we've seen contradictory evidence of that. And furthermore, if it is the case, I'm just saying show us the evidence. And even if you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they did hack John Podesta's emails and the DNC... Well, that doesn't erase what we found in those emails. So either way, I don't know what the end game is here. If Russia did it, do we go to war with them? Do we do more sanctions on them? I mean, I, I just don't understand what Democrats are trying to get out of this. And I think that what this comes down to is them having cognitive dissonance and not being able to accept that they lost because they put up the wrong candidate to beat Donald Trump. The reason why Hillary Clinton lost was not because of Vladimir Putin or WikiLeaks. She lost because she was a flawed candidate and the American people saw right through her. We didn't need WikiLeaks and Russia allegedly to confirm what was already obvious, that the DNC rigged the primary, that Hillary Clinton was overtly corrupt. We already knew this. They just gave us confirmation. So yeah, the Democrats have completely and utterly lost their minds. During the campaign, Donald Trump insisted that he was going to put an end to Washington corruption once and for all, and he repeatedly said, well, you know what he said. It is time to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. We are going to drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. Well, now that he's been elected, he's having a little bit of a change of heart. So The Hill explains Gingrich, a Trump surrogate, told NPR's Morning Edition that he was told Trump now says the phrase was cute, but he doesn't want to use it anymore. Hmm, I wonder why. Gingrich, who has been a close advisor to Trump, said he likes Drain the Swamp because it vividly illustrates the problem because all people in this city who are all alligators are going to hate the swamp being drained. But, you know, he is my leader, and if he decides to drop the swamp and the alligator, I will drop the swamp and the alligator, he says. So Donald Trump claims he's going to drain the swamp, and then he gets in and makes the swamp swampier than ever and fills it with more alligators than it's ever had. I mean, you're appointing 
the actual CEOs of companies. You have the labor secretary, the literal CEO of Carl's Jr. You have the CEO of ExxonMobil as your secretary of state. Donald Trump is filling the swamp and deepening the swamp so much that he's just straight up cutting out the middleman. He's not appointing a puppet of the industry to these cabinet positions. He's just straight up putting someone in the industry. Now, the question is, why is Donald Trump having a change of heart? Here's what I think. I think that Donald Trump never actually cared about, quote, draining the swamp. And when he railed against the puppets in the Republican Party, like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, he was right. But we know from earlier reports from Politico that Donald Trump only started to rail against money in politics when he was rejected by big billionaire donors who always contribute to Republican candidates. So, for example, he went to billionaire donors of the Republican Party and they just straight up rejected him because he's a wild card. They don't really know what he's going to do because he's been on every side of every single political issue in American history. So you never know with Donald Trump. And they want someone who will assure them that they will, in fact, get their tax breaks. Now, they had nothing to worry about, as we all know now, but I think that Donald Trump saw how he was kind of an outsider. He tried to buy politicians, but ultimately, he was never really part of that DC bubble of corruption, and he wanted to be part of it, and he felt excluded. So the reason why he talked about draining the swamp was because he wanted to be part of the swamp, and he wanted to be part of the Cool Kids Club, and he thought that just because he was a billionaire, he could be part of that club, and because he tried to buy politicians, that they would let him into their club, but he was never a part of that club fully, even though I think that he was, but he didn't feel like it, so I think that because of that reason, he always felt the urge to rebel against the DC insiders, and now that he's an insider, he feels accomplished, he feels cool, he's like, well, you know what, I'm part of the swamp, I don't feel excluded anymore, so I, I'm i okay with the swamp, and in fact, I'm gonna make it swampier than ever, I mean, the thing about Donald Trump is that he's a narcissist, and what he cares most about is his ego, so if he feel as the, feels as though anything is hurting his ego, being excluded from that DC corrupt bubble, then I think he's going to speak out against it because he has a big mouth and can't control himself. And now he's part of that DC bubble. He went from an establishment outsider to an insider. And he is as establishment as you could possibly get. I mean, he does skirt party orthodoxy to some extent just because he he does things that are very uncharacteristic of former presidents. Like he always uses Twitter to lambast people and whatnot. And I think that's just part of his personality. But in the end... He's going to govern as any Republican establishment insider would govern. That's very clear right now, but prob probably worse because he's given us every indication that the conflict of interest that he has with his business and the people that he's appointing will make D.C. more corrupt than it's ever been. So he's a faux populist. If you voted for Donald Trump, I'm really sorry, but you were conned. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You were conned. And if Bernie Sanders was elected and he did this... He campaigned as an outsider, but then appointed industry insiders to his cabinet. I'd be the first person screaming about this, but Donald Trump supporters, they don't seem to care. And it's because they can't be objective. They can't admit that they chose a really terrible candidate. And I mean, on the Republican side, who are you going to pick? There wasn't even very good options on the Democrat side. So on the Republican side, certainly all of them are sellouts to the industry and you don't have many choices, but you took a gamble with Trump and thought, well, maybe he will do what he says. He's not. He's corrupt. And this proves it. Bigly.
It's been quite some time since Republicans have had control over all three branches of government, and now that they're going to get that back in January, well, they're going to do what they've been itching to do for a really long time, and that is screw over the American people. And they have really specific plans as to how they're going to do that. So first of all, when it comes to protecting them from having lead in their drinking water, well, they're just going to shut down the investigation into Flint's water crisis. Utah Republican Jason Chaffetz, chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, announced he was ending the congressional investigation. Chaffetz said he had concluded that a series of failures at all levels of government caused and then exacerbated the water crisis. In his letter to the Republican chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee and the House Appropriations Committee, Chaffetz said the committee found significant problems at Michigan's Department of Environment environmental quality and unacceptable delays in the Environmental Protection Agency's response to the crisis. So in other words, he's saying we're no longer going to be investigating Flint's water crisis and we blame the EPA for this. And this investigation is more important than ever because according to a new report, 3,000 cities actually have higher lead levels than Flint. I'm going to repeat that. 3,000 American cities have higher lead levels than Flint. Let's see how Republicans deal with that. Now, there's another way that they're going to screw us over. They're also planning to gut net neutrality, quote, as soon as possible. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission's two Republican members told ISPs yesterday that they will get to work on gutting net neutrality rules as soon as possible. FCC Republicans Ajit Paj and Michael O'Reilly sent a letter to five lobby groups representing wireless carriers and small ISPs. While the letter is mostly about plans to extend an exemption for small providers from certain disclosure requirements, the commissioners also said they will tackle the entire net neutrality order shortly after President-elect Donald Trump's inauguration on January 20th. And this is really really troubling because if they gut net neutrality, then that means that they are allowing internet service providers like Comcast to basically kill off anyone they don't like. So if they are afraid that Netflix is taking too many of their customers, they can slow down the service that Netflix provides, which would effectively kill them. And this actually has even broader implications when it comes to government information. So if Comcast for example, we'll use them because they're evil. If they decide that YouTube is pretty problematic because many commentators on YouTube like to expose the shady anti-consumer tactics of Comcast, well, we want to slow down traffic for YouTube. And they can do that and get away with it. So there's no more net neutrality. Internet service providers can discriminate against websites that they don't like. And that's going to be bad for democracy. Now, there's a third way that Republicans are planning to screw over the American people. So presumed homosexuals Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, possibly with each other, are reintroducing the Orwellian-titled First Amendment Defense Act. Now, according to NBC News, FADA would prohibit the federal government from taking discriminatory action against any business or person that discriminates against LGBTQ people. The act distinctly aims to protect the right of all entities to refuse service to LGBTQ people based on two sets of beliefs. One, marriages for should be recognized as the union of one man and one woman, 
or two, sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. Jennifer Pizer, law and policy director at Lambda Legal, told NBC, FADA invites widespread devastating discrimination against LGBT people and is a deeply unconstitutional bill. And that's because it violates multiple clauses of the Constitution. So obviously it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and ironically, it violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, so it's literally named the First Amendment Defense Act, and it's going to violate the First Amendment, and I would argue that it also violates the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, because the federal government is allowed, they have the constitutional authority to regulate interstate commerce, so they can't mess with the economy inside of any states, but any Anything going on between states, interstate commerce, they have the authority to regulate. And this bill would definitely hinder interstate commerce because if you live in the state of Oregon like me, and if Alabama enacts this type of law, then I'm not going to want to travel to Alabama and that will hurt Alabama's economy. The federal government has a right to regulate that. And this bill would prevent the federal government from regulating interstate commerce. That's unconstitutional. Now, this agenda is pretty ambitious. They really, really want to screw over the American people, and they want to make sure that it goes off without a hitch. So Ted Cruz is already gearing up to fight Democrats, and he predicts that Democrats would become obstructionists at a level we've never seen and will filibuster absolutely everything they can. <laughs> they, they have no shame, because what we saw during Obama's administration is an unprecedented level of Republican obstructionism, and then people like Ted Cruz have the audacity to come in and talk about how Democrats are going to be obstructionists. Let's talk about the Republican obstructionism. They literally stalled the SCOTUS nominee longer than ever before in American history. They tried to repeal Obamacare almost 60 times. They broke the filibuster record, and Ted Cruz literally shut down the government. Remember this? Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Ha! Gay! So I find it funny that they now want to cry about democratic obstructionism. Well, Ted Cruz, you don't even have to worry. The Democrats are going to get in and do whatever you want. They don't have spines. They've shown that time and again. So I don't know what you're worried about. So yes, you will be able to get in and screw over the American people. And you have all three branches of, gov of uh, government on your side. So you can do this and it's going to go great for you. You're winning now. So don't worry about it, Ted Cruz. But, you know, to be serious here, this really is honestly very problematic and we better hope that Republicans don't see obstructionism from Democrats, because if they had any spine, then they would be obstructionists, and I hope they are obstructionists, and I hope they do everything to destroy the Republicans for passing these unconstitutional, immoral, unethical policies, but we all know the Democratic Party is going to let it happen, and they're going to roll over and die. So I've always personally been against the Electoral College because I think it's an outdated institution that ultimately undermines the will of voters, and it's done this on multiple occasions. Now, with that being said, I can rationalize substantive disagreements 
with my position. People will say, well, Mike, even though it does actually give more power to rural voters, we have to weight their votes accordingly because if we don't, then they'll be completely ignored by all of the politicians. And I get that. I get reasonable defenses for the Electoral College, even though I disagree. But what you're about to see is not a reasonable defense. Abolishing the Electoral College, that is the subject of this evening's talking points memo. After Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, the left in America is demanding that the Electoral College system put into place in 1787 be scrapped. But there's a hidden reason for this. As we reported, even though Secretary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.8 million, the progressive state of California provided all of that margin. Clinton defeating Trump there by about 4.3 million votes. So if the Electoral College were abolished, presidential candidates could simply campaign in the nation's largest states and cities, New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston, and rack up enough votes to pretty much win any election. That's what the left wants. That's what they want. Because in the large urban areas and blue states like New York and California, minorities are substantial. Look at the landscape. Philadelphia, Dallas, Fort Worth, Miami. In all of these places, the minority vote usually goes heavily to the Democrats. Head to that New York City, L.A., and Chicago, San Francisco. Don't really have a national election anymore, do you? You have targeted populations. Newspapers like the New York Times and the L.A. Times have editorialized to get rid of the Electoral College. They well know that neutralizing the largely white rural areas in the Midwest and South will assure liberal politicians get power and keep it. Talking Boys believes this is all about race. The left sees white privilege in America as an oppressive force that must be done away with. Therefore, white working class voters must be marginalized. And what better way to do that than center the voting power in the cities? Very few commentators will tell you that the heart of liberalism in America today is based on race. It permeates almost every issue. That white men have set up a system of oppression. That system must be destroyed. Bernie Sanders peddled that. To some extent, Hillary Clinton did. And the liberal media tries to sell that all day long. So-called white privilege, bad. Diversity, good. If you look at the voting patterns, it's clear that the Democrats are heavily reliant on the minority vote, also on the woman vote. White men have largely abandoned the Democrats. And the left believes this is because of racism, that they want to punish minorities, keep them down. So that's what's really going on when you hear about the Electoral College and how unfair it allegedly is. Summing up, left wants power taken away from the white establishment. They want a profound change in the way America is run. Taking voting power away from the white precincts is the quickest way to do that. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I really love the underlying irony in this segment because... Fox News is a network that always bemoans how the Democratic Party makes any and every issue about race, but here they are making an issue unrelated to race about race. So I just find it funny overall. You can't explain that. He suggests that since it was put into place in 1787, that's a reason to keep it. But if anything, I think that that's an argument that hurts your position because you're illustrating just how outdated the institution is. So the fact that it existed for centuries, that's not a compelling argument. That tells me that we really do need to look at it and reevaluate whether or not we want to keep it. Saying that something is old and traditional and part of American history 
is not a compelling argument. Now, he also says, so if the Electoral College were abolished, candidates could campaign in the largest cities and states and rack up enough votes to pretty much win any election. Right. That's what I like to call democracy. Isn't that how it's supposed to be? I mean, when you live in a democratic republic, the goal is to get as much votes as possible. So, I, like, I, I don't get how that's a bad thing to you. And that's, in fact, how most democracies in other countries work. It's just you get more votes, you win. It's plurality or majority. I don't understand why you think states with a population of 10 people should be able to determine the outcome of the election for everyone else. It doesn't make any sense to me. Someone in a smaller state's vote should not matter more than other people's. That's why we have the House of Representatives, so they can petition their representative in their district for representation. Now, furthermore, if you're a Republican in Oregon, for example, your vote effectively doesn't count because all of our state's electoral votes are going to go to the Democratic candidate no matter what. For me, I voted for Jill Stein. Zero electoral votes went to Jill Stein. But if we didn't have the Electoral College, then my vote would just go directly to Jill Stein and a vote for uh, Trump in my state of Oregon would go directly to Donald Trump. So you're taking away the voices of some people. And I think that's inherently unfair. Now, he also states, newspapers that advocate for the abolition of the Electoral College, quote, know that neutralizing the largely white rural areas in the Midwest and South will assure liberal politicians get power. You're making this argument now, but if you fast forward a couple decades later, demographics are changing, Bill. That's a fact. There will be less white people in the country in several decades. So what does that mean? That means that if you don't get rid of the Electoral College now, then that will make it more difficult for Republicans to win the White House in the future. For example, Texas is on the verge of flipping. Maybe in a couple decades, they're going to be a blue state outright. Now, other states might flip and become red states. But as far as we know, as it stands, if Texas does in fact become a blue state, that's going to be really difficult for Republicans to ever take the White House back. So you're making this argument now, but I guarantee in a couple of decades, you're going to change your story and you're going to say, no, we need to abolish the Electoral College. And then he states, the left sees white privilege in America as an oppressive force that has to be done away with. Therefore, the white working class voters must be marginalized. And what better way to do that than center the voting power in cities? Okay, nobody's calling for white working class voters to be marginalized, Bill. You made that up. You pulled that out of your asshole. And furthermore, you're trying to make this about race when real liberals are calling for class equality as well as gender and racial equality. If you're against that, you're just an asshole. Do you honestly think that some demographics in the country should have more political power than others? You can't explain that. As liberals, we're calling for equality of all groups. Whites, blacks, gays, straights, it doesn't matter. We think that regardless of your political identity, regardless of your sexual and racial and gender identity, that you should be able to have the same political power, the same voice as everyone else. That's what makes us liberal. The fact that you're basically inadvertently admitting that you think that white voters should have more power, it's a little bit telling, don't you think? He then talks about how the left makes every issue about race and how Bernie Sanders peddled that and to some extent Hillary Clinton did. Look, this is really ironic to me since you're turning a discussion about abolishing the Electoral College into one about race. Maybe you should look in the mirror 
when you talk about things like this, Bill. The fact is that many white people live in cities as well, Bill. And in many large cities, the white population is actually growing. But I mean, in the end, none of this even matters. We should evaluate the efficacy of the Electoral College with respect to its impact on democracy and not gauge whether or not it helps or hurts one group or political group or demographic over the other. What we should do is look at these political institutions and determine whether or not they're fair or unfair. And when you look at the Electoral College, I don't see how you conclude that it's fair. I mean, even if you admit that it's important for rural voters to have a larger say in elections because they would otherwise get steamrolled by larger cities, I understand that, but that's still inherently unfair. You're giving some people a louder voice than others in a democracy. And the whole premise of democracy is one person, one vote. So the Electoral College takes away from that. So I get the rationalization for wanting to keep the Electoral College. But when it comes to the defenses of the Electoral College, this is definitely one of the worst I've seen. Tide goes in, tide goes out. You can't explain that. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank all of you for tuning in so loyally each week. And I also want to welcome all of the newest people to the channel that just recently found us or rediscovered us. So I want to send a special thank you to the members, the Patreon patrons, and people who donate via PayPal. You guys are amazing and you keep this show going. So I will see you all next week. Happy holidays. Uh, goodbye.